My name's Matt Simpkins. I'm an Anglican priest and musician. In this series of podcasts, I've been drawing out the whispered light held in the four last things of Advent, death, judgment, heaven and hell, by reflecting on them through folk hymns, gospel songs and those ancient lyrics, the Psalms. Of these four last things, you might expect that heaven would be the easiest theme in which to find light. I have an admission to make, however. In my late teens and twenties, I spent more time worrying about the idea of heaven than the idea of hell. It wasn't a source of light and hope to me, but a source of concern, consternation even. I worried that to go into some heavenly realm of perfection would mean the end of so much that I love. Even more troubling than that, surely it meant the end of my personality. My flaws and quirks are part of who I am. If I'm to be perfected, I'd be perfected away. What would remain of me? If there's to be no place for silliness, slightly inappropriate jokes and ramshackle music making in heaven, then to go there sounds more like my annihilation than eternal delight. Whispered Light, an Advent podcast on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven and hell, explored through songs and the Psalms. Episode 3, Heaven, there is a happy land far, far away. If we believe in heaven as a distant, distinct place of perfection and peace, Doesn't that basically deny value to the clamour and chaos of our present lives? Where does that leave the world in which all experiences of love and loss, of triumph and tragedy, of beauty and inspiration have taken place? Should Christians in fact retreat to a bunker, steadfastly ignoring the world and awaiting our time in heaven? To the 19-year-old me, Perfection and peace sounded remarkably boring, stultifying. The playwright Bernard Shaw wrote, Heaven, as conventionally conceived, is a place so inane, so dull, so useless, so miserable, that nobody has ever ventured to describe a whole day in heaven. I couldn't help but agree. The popular 19th century folk hymn, There is a Happy Land, shares in that vision of heaven that I found so troubling. Thank you. 
to that happy land far, far away. Why will you doubting stand? Why yet delay? Oh, we shall happy be when from sin and sorrow free. Lord, we shall live with thee. Blessed, blessed, blessed parade. with heaven is that so many confusions and assumptions swirl around the idea that we've arrived at a popular vision of it that has little to do with what the books of the bible actually have to say one view goes like this you live your life you're good or bad you die and then you wake up on a cloud in heaven or amid the flames of hell to receive your reward or punishment a number of these confusions are laid bare in There Is a Happy Land. Happy Land was originally published as a hymn in 1838 by a Scottish schoolmaster, Andrew Young. The hymn's popularity became so immense that, despite an impressive career in education, Young's memorial in Rosebank Cemetery, Edinburgh, simply declares that he was author of There Is a Happy Land. The hymn soon crossed the Atlantic, where it was given the lovely tune I sang by Leonard P. Breedlove. Breedlove was a sacred harp singer from Georgia. Sacred harp, or shape note singing, was a way of publishing music for mass appeal and quick consumption. A little like tonic so far, it used a system of shaped note heads to indicate which note in the scale the singer should sing. A circle was the first degree of the scale, a square the second, a diamond the third, and a triangle the fourth. Encouraged by the religious revival of the 1840s, large gatherings for sacred harp singing became very popular, especially in the southern states of America. Before singing the words, the singers first recite the solfar names of their notes, which lends each performance a beautiful, strange cacophony.
Breedlove was on the revision committee for the Sacred Harp book, the main source for shape note singing, and so his tune became attached to Young's words. Well before records and charts, the inclusion of Happy Land in this influential book was a mark of popular success. In the song, heaven is described as a happy and distant land where the saints stand in brilliant light, singing sweet songs of praise. In this wonderful place, high above the sun, every eye beams. This heaven is a wholesome place of glory, far removed from the world we know. The bright eyes, honeyed singing, and faraway paradise above the sun oversweeten the concoction to the point where the song almost begs to be mocked. And of course, mocked it was. Happy Land fell victim to Mark Twain's wit in his novel The American Claimant, where it received earthy new lyrics. There is a boarding house far, far away, where they give ham and eggs three times a day. Oh, how them boarders yell when they hear the dinner bell. They give the landlord hell three times a day. The song's otherworldly sweetness demanded an ultra-worldly parody. And it's that contrast between the otherworldly and ultra-worldly that highlights one great confusion in our thinking about heaven. Heaven, portrayed as a distant, ethereal, happy land, can appear so removed from the world we know that it seems either ridiculous or to stand in complete condemnation over the present world, effectively declaring it worthless. But there is danger in believing in an otherworldly spiritual afterlife completely divorced from our material, bodily existence in this world. This contrast between the spiritual and the bodily, or between a good heaven and a bad world, is a type of dualism, an exaggeration of contrast into conflict and incompatibility. It's a common criticism of Christianity and other faiths that those who are focused on the reward of some otherworldly spiritual heaven are more easily convinced to do violent and dreadful things in this world in the name of righteousness, or to disconnect from it and become negligent, not acting to right wrongs, but instead keeping themselves pure and separate until they get to heaven. The history of Christianity is full of dualisms like this being denounced as heresy, and they never quite did go out of fashion. Because, like all distortions of faith, these dualisms between bad bodies and good spirits, bad earth and good heaven, are bred and fed by passages of scripture open to over-interpretation. The Bible is a library of books with a wide variety of things to say about what happens when our present life ends. Heaven is portrayed in a number of ways, the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven. And there are various descriptions of what happens when we die. Rather than immediately waking up in heaven or hell, one significant suggestion is that we go to the grave and then, sometime in the future, there will be a general resurrection when we are all raised from the dead to be judged. There isn't time to do justice to the fascinating melting pot of ideas about heaven and death in the Bible. 
but for our purposes now, it should simply be noted that though scripture offers many different images of heaven and what happens after death, across these traditions there's no indication that heaven has absolutely nothing to do with earth. One way into this issue is to look at one of the earliest controversies amongst Jesus' followers who wanted to understand how the risen Christ related to the Jesus who had ministered in Galilee and Judea. Was this resurrected Jesus a ghost? Had he really died? What body did he have? Did it smell of decay? Or was it a different, new body? The Gospels contain accounts of encounters with the risen Christ where the witnesses seem to have initial difficulty recognising him. Was the resurrection just an elaborate hoax? Earlier than the Gospels, the oldest documents in the New Testament are letters written by the Apostle Paul to address real-life problems in the first Christian communities. Reading a letter out of its original context is always tricky. But there's enough detail in Paul's writing to give us a picture of what was going on. Unsurprisingly, these questions were live issues and in Paul's first letter to the Christians at Corinth, he tackles the issue of Jesus' death and resurrection and what this means for our bodies on earth and in heaven. Paul preempts his readers' questions about bodies. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He responds that there is both a continuity and a discontinuity between our present bodies and our resurrection bodies. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. English translations can give the impression that the differences are what matters most here. The problem is that in Paul's time, matter, flesh, spirit and bodies were thought of very differently than today. What's clear, however, is that Paul believes bodies are of great importance to Christianity and that our embodiment continues in heaven. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The important contrast for Paul is not between a ghostly spiritual existence in heaven and an evil earthly body, but between a body subject to life in Christ and a body subject to the power of sin and death. There's plenty more that could be said here, but what matters is that whatever Paul thinks of flesh, bodies are never rejected. There is continuity and discontinuity between our earthly and heavenly bodies, but bodies are essential. So we can't just dismiss what our bodies mean in the present world. This stuff may seem abstract, but it matters because it helps us understand the relationship between heaven and earth, 
and it's essential for making sense of the meaning of our bodies now. To those who have suffered trauma and violence, those who are disabled, those who have questions about their identity, the meaning of our bodies on earth and in heaven is very significant. Will our scars make it to heaven? In John's Gospel, the accounts of the risen Christ are at pains to show that Jesus' resurrection body was still showing his wounds. The disciple Thomas asked the obvious and right questions. Is this the same Jesus or some sort of trick? And so he says to the other disciples, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The importance of Jesus' body and what happened to it is clear. But the continuity also sits with a discontinuity. Jesus appears in a room with locked doors. Yet he appears still bearing his scars, scars that can be touched. His body is recognisably his own. What might this mean for us, for our bodies? This relationship between earth and heaven has been sung about for thousands of years. The Psalms sing of Zion, a new Jerusalem, not some brand new unrelated heaven, but another Jerusalem. The continuity is important. Zion was the name of the mountain in Jerusalem on which the temple was situated, but also became a term for the heavenly city. The ambiguity is deliberate and significant. That which is and that which is to come are not unrelated. Psalm 9 tells us that the Lord dwells in Zion. Zion as the home of God is therefore the place from where equity and justice is established for the world. In Psalm 99 we read that from Zion God rules like a great and holy king. The Lord is great in Zion. 
He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Mighty King, lover of justice, you have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. In Psalm 48, Zion is called the city of God. Heaven is described as a social and political entity, a city. As Bishop Richard Harris observes, heaven is above all social. A prominent image in the Bible is of a transformed city, a new Jerusalem, for it is life with one another. So, heaven, the new Jerusalem, the next world, is not unconnected with our present existence. Yet it is different in ways that are important and beautiful. And here, there is a happy land is helpful. In its description of heaven as a place where we are free from sin and sorrow. A place where love cannot die. In her novel Gilead, Marilyn Robinson offers an exquisite description of the relationship between this world and the next. Gilead is a long letter from the Reverend Jack Ames, a minister approaching his death, written for his young son to read in his maturity. Ames pours out insight after insight across the pages in the hope of passing on the beautiful and important things about God's universe and our lives. This is what Jack writes to his son about the meaning of the present world when we consider heaven. I know this is all mere apparition compared to what awaits us, but it is only lovelier for that. There is a human beauty in it. And I can't believe that when we have all been changed and put on incorruptibility, we will forget our fantastic condition of mortality and impermanence, the great bright dream of procreating and perishing that meant the whole world to us. In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that has passed here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. Because I don't imagine any reality putting this one in the shade entirely. And I think piety forbids me to try. Deploying Paul's language of impermanence and incorruptibility, Jack both honours the wonder of human beauty and recognises that heaven is wonderful beyond our imagining. This is the vision that I needed so desperately when I was 19. And in suggesting that this world will be in the next, the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets, Robinson has given us an incredibly powerful image for those who love music. This life, this beautiful troubled life in which we share, will be the folk song sung in heaven. Proper folk songs are things we receive Things we sense are meaningful, though often in ways we can't fully express. We can't completely grasp their origins, and some of the experiences that form them are alien to us. Yet we can take them on, interpret them, sing them out and share them. What we receive as gift, we pass on as gift, adding just a little of ourselves to the song as we pass it on. 
our own personality, melding with the thousands of others who have passed the song on before, changed it, honed it or corrupted it over the years. That is what this life is to be. The folk song they sing in heaven. So it turns out I was right to be troubled by heaven. But only because I'd got heaven wrong. Turning it into an alien place of perfection. A spiritualised, sanitised, distant place. Cleansed of the human beauty which God allows us in this life. This world does matter. Our bodies, our relationships, our experiences matter. We are called to live life in abundance by Jesus, to appreciate the gifts around us as we live as people preparing for heaven, where we shall come face to face with him. And when we are with the Jesus whose body still shows the wounds of the cross, we will understand for the first time who we really are our flaws, our disappointments, our sufferings, our sin will still have happened, but we will be freed from their power, liberated from the power of death and sin. What has been in our lives has been, but in heaven the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, the power and effects of sin and death are annihilated. We are free from sin and sorrow. But not to be conformed to some imposed idea of human perfection, rather to simply be ourselves as God always intended. And we will sing. We will sing folk songs. We will sing the songs of the world where we once loved and laughed and wept and hoped.